Homage to the Blessed, the Noble, the Perfectly Enlightened One. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami So we've been following the five precepts or if we have more energy we follow the eight precepts This is the fourth day of our retreat together We may have experienced some degree of peace and collectedness some rapture and fullness in the heart through our Dhamma practice, whether a little or a lot. <coughs> so we have this firm intent to practice, and this is something that's important. This comes from a foundation that we've built before, from our parmi, our spiritual virtues that we've cultivated in the past. And this is the cause that in this life we have interest to practice the Dhamma. There are people who ask, well, if one is a deva in one's last life and then born again, is one interested in Dhamma practice? Someone can look at the present moment. If one has interest in the Dhamma in the present moment, and one had interest before, whether it was last month or last year or one's last life, one had already had interest in the Dhamma before. And then when the time comes, we do our meditation practice. In the future, if we still have the causes in the mind to be born again, then this merit, this goodness that we do, it's all in our mind, in our heart already. We have this firmly established faith arising again, this firm intent to practice arising again. Then we strive in our Dhamma practice. We have this feeling of liking, of affinity for the Dhamma. We enjoy it. We like the Dhamma. Another type of desire or liking is that with regard to visual forms, sounds, tastes, smell, physical touch, and mental objects. And this is a worldly type of liking that's associated with attachment and kilesa, defilement. But when it comes to desire and liking in Dhamma practice, this is something different. It's associated with faith and striving to develop our minds to become better than before, to become higher. So we have this faith to engage in goodness and merit. And we ask, well, what does this faith arise from? Why does it arise? This faith arises because of the fully self-awakened Buddha who came before us. The Buddha who was the first to awaken in the world, who built his spiritual virtues, 
who said his heart had the firm intent to help living beings be free of the cycle of birth and death, the cycle of birth and death, which is incredibly long. Being born into one's life, one as clinging to phenomena as me and mine, as self. But whatever it is that we cling to, in the end we have to throw it all away, discard it. Having been born, we strive to seek out knowledge and experience, material wealth. But in the end, we must be separated from all of that. Whether it's a loved one, a close friend, someone that one respects, material things, we have to separate from all of that. So the Buddha saw that this suffering of living beings is great. It is a great amount of dukkha. Because conditioned formations are of the nature to degrade and pass away. For instance, there is illness, which can be very intense and very painful, leading up to death. And so we have faith, we have this firm intent, and we incline our minds to recollect the qualities of the Buddha. We recollect and pay homage to the good qualities of the Buddha. So the Buddha taught and we strive to understand that whatever it is that we cherish in this world, it's no use to us when we die, we have to throw it away. A smart individual will store some of this wealth away before one dies so that their family members can do merit and honor of the deceased. And we try to do generosity and virtue to do all types of goodness we try to do so that this becomes an inner wealth in our hearts. So do this a lot. Practice to not harm oneself or harm others, but to cultivate that which is good and wholesome, to give rise to even more merit in the mind. Then this merit becomes a good energy in the mind that becomes stored as an energy in our hearts, so that wherever we go, wherever we get born again, this good energy follows us. So this is something that a smart person would do this is the way for an intelligent person to practice. Because we see that all the coarse material things, they're all of the nature to change. And so we make these coarse material objects, we turn them into a subtler, a noble wealth in the heart. Whether it's generosity or virtue or all different types of merit, they become a good energy in the heart. So the five precepts, or the eight precepts, we try to do that. And we practice following the schedule and discipline of this retreat. And this is an energy in our mind that we use to develop our mind. So we have faith, we have firm intent, and with this we can succeed. It's not that we just sit around without any effort, just sit around lackadaisically. But having listened to the Dhamma, then we practice to follow it. If we listen to the Dhamma and just sit around without putting in effort, then we won't gain Dhamma understanding.
There was one occasion where a lay person at Wat Nongpapong, the monastery of Venerable Ajahn Chah, listened to the teachings of Ajahn Chah. And at one time, Ajahn Chah walked by this lay disciple. And this disciple said, Ajahn Chah, you've taught correctly, but I can't follow it. I can't follow what you've taught. And if this is the attitude of mind, then there's nothing left to do. It's, that's, that's the end of it right there. But if one's able to put the teachings into practice, this is a different story. If there are good teachings, then one must put them into practice. One must do them, have effort with it. To say that one can't do it means that one has no effort. It's like someone who goes into a body of water and they have no effort to swim and they drown in that water. But when we have effort, it means we swim. And in this way, we can cross over a large river by virtue of our effort. And we recollect the effort of the Lord Buddha, which is much greater than our effort, an effort without comparison. It's as if there, in the whole vast universe there was a little bird chirping. And we can think, well, how loud would this be? And we compare this to the great virtues of the Buddha that we praise as virtue, which is vaster than the great vast universe, it has no limit, no compare. Because the Buddha put forth effort and strove to become the fully self-awakened Buddha. But for ourselves, we have the spiritual virtues of a disciple, of a sawaka. So we have effort to follow the Buddha just that much. It's as if there is a fruit orchard with mangoes and mangosteen and durian and so on, and the fruits are already ripe. All we have to do is enter into that orchard and eat those fruits. It's not very difficult. But the Lord Buddha is the owner of that orchard. He had to plant the trees, to water them, to fertilize them, to let the trees grow to a sufficient age where they could bear fruit. And so he cared for this orchard with a lot of effort and time. And so this path of Dhamma practice, the path to freedom from suffering, is here already. All we have to do is put forth effort to strive to cultivate merit, to follow that path. So since the beginning we do generosity. If we haven't practiced generosity before, then it's something difficult to do. And some foreigners may not understand this practice of generosity. They may see the Thai people giving uh, donations and having uh, practicing generosity and people from other countries may not understand. But there are those uh, foreigners with a lot of faith as well who really have a desire for goodness and merit which brings them happiness and fullness in their heart. And this is the heart of a deva, a heavenly being. In the beginning it's natural that we have this love and cherishing and attachments. And when we separate from these things, this is inevitable because all 
these things must degrade by nature. Whether it's from various dangers like floods, fire, war, disease, earthquake, tsunami, and so on, all these various types of outer wealth must pass away. So whether through some various accidents or other means, everything in the world must pass away like this. And when we're attached, then this gives rise to agitation and trouble in our hearts, gives rise to suffering. This wealth, we have it and we feel happy, but when it goes away, then we feel sad. So having wealth, we should use it properly to care for our lives, use it correctly, and train our hearts. Because in our hearts we have felt and seen old age, sickness, and death. And we realize we must have, we must experience these things for certain. We can't take anything with us when we die. So therefore we have the faith to strive to do goodness, to do merit all the time. This brings us a feeling of fullness and happiness in our hearts. If we're accustomed to giving, then we practice to do more. When our mind is ready to give, then we do it, we practice it. But we also practice not to harm ourselves, not to harm our families, because we have to care for our own life as well. And this is speaking of outer giving, but that which is harder to do is the giving of forgiveness, which is also called the giving of fearlessness. And this giving of forgiveness, we see that when we have dosa, when we have aversion arise in our minds, it's very difficult to let go because there's nothing that grabs the heart like dosa. Aversion grabs the heart like nothing else in the world. So may you take care during your day not to give rise to anger, not to act out of anger through behavior of body, speech, or mind. Because we have this disliking arising, and we have various thoughts we may wish to harm or hurt. But we see that this is natural for all people to have a version of some type arise. Whether it's a monastic or a layperson, a version is normal for people to experience. Whether in the Buddha's time, in the present day, or in the future, it's the same. Based on ignorance, disliking arises. We don't want certain experiences, and so we experience aversion in the heart. So given this, we must practice metta bhavana, the cultivation of loving-kindness. One who cultivates loving-kindness sleeps happily, sleeps at ease. They are beloved by humans and heavenly beings. So we cultivate this meditation on loving-kindness. And loving-kindness is that which takes care of our other meditation objects. Loving-kindness cares for our hearts and minds. And this is a way to build merit and goodness. And then we practice giving, practice virtue, we give forgiveness, 
And if we're angry a lot, then we set our hearts on this. For myself, I've practiced in the past as well, setting my heart to not be angry with anyone upon waking up in the morning. And if I did get angry, I would have the intention not to give rise to thoughts of harming or hurting. Because even stream enters have anger arise. Not very much, a little bit. But stream enters don't have this wish to harm or have vengeance. Because all beings, having been born, share in suffering. And having cut off the sense of self, having seen not self, one can ask, well, why, why be angry if there's no self to be found? Who's there to be angry with? Who is there to hurt or enact vengeance upon? Is it their body? Is one angry at their body? We see that the physical body doesn't know what's going on. It's just a pile of earth, air, fire, and water. It has no idea about these things. It's just a pile of elements that is of the nature to degrade. And all beings are the same in this way. So you can see, well, who is there to be angry with? Then one may think, well, one is angry with the mind. But really this mind, it's controlled by the defilements. It's controlled by ignorance. So who is there to be angry with? Who is there to have vengeance towards? When we get deluded, then anger arises and the wish to harm arises. The Buddha taught to see anger clearly, to see that when we think in these angry ways, then these feelings arise, but we practice to give forgiveness. And why is that? because we see the drawbacks in anger. Anger does arise, but we see the drawbacks in it. Therefore we practice loving kindness. Because ignorance leads to suffering. Ignorance covers over our minds and we suffer. And it's the same with other people's minds as well. Their minds are covered with ignorance and their minds suffer as well. So we see that it all arises because of delusion, because of ignorance. And this ignorance is something that's not me, not mine, not you, not yours, not self. Based on causes, it arises. And so we see that it leads to suffering, leads to attachment, to craving, to feeling, to conditioned formations to proliferation, to the sense of self arising. And then again, to ignorance. This ignorance is the cause of the sense of self arising, of me and you, them and theirs, which again leads again to feeling. And this just cycles about, circles around in this way. But there's no self to be found in this process. There's no one to be angry with. So may you contemplate this. And if one doesn't see not-self, then it's merely because ignorance is covering over the mind. But we see that 
having a sense of self, having been born, no one wants suffering, no one wants to experience pain and difficulty. And this is the same for oneself and others, all the same. So may you set your hearts in this way and investigate within your own heart, do I have anger? Do I have vengeance? In the beginning, we all have these qualities. So may you practice loving kindness, contemplate this, establish your mindfulness firmly, establish it well, and see that it's something that's not helpful in practice to abandon it. And if you're not able to abandon it, then keep having effort, keep having perseverance, because this quality of effort is something important. And so we sit in meditation for one hour in the beginning, and we can work up to two hours to three hours. We can work our way up to six hours of sitting in a day. For monastics who have more time, they can meditate up to eight hours or more in a day. And this is due to effort. So it's by virtue of effort that we can do this effort to cut off that which is unwholesome, effort to abandon laziness. So we set our hearts firmly on this, to have effort to fight. And with this effort in fighting, our mind is joyful and happy, feels refreshed and uplifted. This is due to the merit that we're building. So may you have effort We've chanted since the early morning, since 5 a.m. So we have effort in our Dhamma practice. And if we don't have time to join in all the sessions, perhaps we have to go to work, then we chant it to be so, the qualities of the Buddha throughout the day, to have mindfulness well established in our minds. We practice to have a lot of mindfulness because when we have a lot of mindfulness, we're close to the Buddha. When mindfulness is clear, the Buddha is clear in our minds. So mindfulness leads to wisdom. We have effort to abandon that which is unwholesome and to prevent that which is unwholesome from arising. We have effort to give rise to that which is wholesome and effort to nourish and cultivate further that which is wholesome and already arisen. So we have generosity, we have faith, and with this faith then we put the teachings into practice. If we see the opportunity to help, we should hurry up and help, helping the poor, the disadvantaged, helping the sick, the disabled, and so on. If we can do it, then we should hurry up and do it to help society, to give donations to monastics and ascetics according to our energy and ability, and to be careful as well, to know that virtue is something of great value. And in the beginning we may not see the value in virtue we may not see it as something worth doing, but perhaps our mother and father have practiced it already, for instance, on the lunar observance days, and so we practice following their example. 
We do it because our parents have done it, but we still don't see the value in it. But then we hear that the Buddha taught that virtue is of incredible value. And so we do it out of faith like this. So we keep practicing virtue, we get used to it. And then at this point we can actually see the fruit and benefit of virtue for ourselves. And in this way we become more motivated, have more energy to practice sila. And in terms of meditation, in terms of samadhi, we may have heard that samadhi can give rise to rapture, a great feeling of fullness and happiness in the heart, can give rise to energy in the mind, light, lightness in body and mind. And having heard this, we want to know what it's like. Because in the present, we just feel agitated and troubled just full of thinking and distractions, proliferations, and a lot of chaos in the mind. We may have doubts about Dhamma practice, doubts about the path of practice. And so we listen to the teachings of the monks, and we understand that this is the correct way to practice. And through this, then our faith grows even more in Dhamma practice, and we try to do it. In the morning, some wake up early in order to give alms to the monastics. And some undertake the moral precepts by themselves in the morning. This is something that you can do. and can give rise to joy and freshness, upliftment of mind. We have happiness with our practice of sila. We see the benefit of see the practice. We feel full, we feel happy. This is a noble wealth in the heart. In this way our faith doesn't waver, but we're well established in this virtue and goodness. So we have faith in Dhamma practice, and therefore we have effort to train our hearts and minds, to keep a watch over the mind, to establish mindfulness well, to care for our hearts, to overcome suffering, to overcome difficulty. So may you be intent to do this in this lifetime. May you use this life to do goodness and merit to its utmost, to it, the fullness of your ability before you die. Because we don't know how long we have we don't, in this world, we're not told how long we'll be in this world. We don't know when we'll die or what we'll die from. If we have merit and parami, we can live a long life, 70, 80, 90, or up to 100. But we don't know, will we be very sick towards the end? Will we be bedridden? This is something that we don't choose. We don't choose or know where we'll die, what illness we'll die from. If we'll die from a plane crash, from drowning in water, die in the morning or the evening, we just don't know. So we see that this world is very dark. Having been born, having been born into these bodies, then life is something obscured and dark. We don't know the future. 
So therefore, be heedful. Have mindfulness well established in your mind to look after your mind. Because we see that this mind is something that receives sense impressions. And what are these? Well, it's the inner sense bases of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. And the outer sense objects of visual forms, sounds, tastes, touches, smells, and mental objects. And all these things are experiences that arise in the mind. They are called the inner and outer ayatana. And based on these inner and outer sense bases and objects, then contact arises, feeling arises. And the mind that is covered with ignorance will have liking and disliking arise based on these experiences. And so we cultivate the four Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And we see that all beings wish for happiness, wish for freedom. All beings want to be free and happy. And so therefore we practice not to harm or hurt any living being, because all beings share the experience of a mind covered with ignorance. This is the mind that's not free. So therefore we shouldn't be angry with them because all beings were all friends in old age, friends in sickness and friends in death. We're all the same in this way. So we may have anger, may have the wish to harm, but we see that we're all the same. We all want happiness and goodness. So therefore, care for your mind with loving-kindness, the divine abiding of loving-kindness. Because the mind that goes into liking, goes into disliking, this is not the path, this is not the way. This is the mind that's stuck in the world, stuck in experience stuck in the path of indulgence or self-torture. So don't walk either of these extreme paths. Practice to observe the mind with clarity, to have well-established mindfulness to see clearly. Whether it's a sense experience that we like, contemplate it's unstable, it's unsure, it's impermanent, it's not self. Pleasurable feeling is not self. It's all not self, whether it's craving for sense experience, craving for becoming, or craving to not become, these three types of tanha, they're all arising based on causes. In this vibhava tanha, for instance, we're with people that we don't like, or we don't enjoy their company, perhaps we have different views from them, and we have this craving not to be arise. This is just another type of craving or an experience of the six senses that we don't want. Then we crave to not have that experience. It, perhaps it's a kind of object or food that we don't like. And this is a craving not to have, not to be. 
And if it's a food that we like, then we want it. So we set our hearts on practicing the path of Dhamma. We see, are we, are we liking, are we disliking? Keep a watch over the mind, not to cling to these two phenomena of either liking or disliking. Because if we do, then we become stuck in the world. This is not the path of practice. See all liking and all disliking as impermanent, unstable, uncertain. It's not a me, not a mine, not a you or yours, not a self. A mind is just the mind. So we sit in meditation sometimes for a long time. This gives rise to painful sensation. We may walk for a long time. This can be painful as well. Or we feel sleepy. So may you have mindfulness with these experiences and contemplate them. We contemplate that these sense experiences in the body, these painful sensations arise because of our nervous system. Our nervous system is sending information through the body. But if the nervous system is broken, then we don't feel anything. The life uh, or the body is like a lifeless log, a senseless log. We try to lift our arm and we can't lift it if the nerves don't work. So we see that it's not self. We can't do anything if the nervous system isn't operating. So we see clearly that it's anatta, not a me, not a mine, not a you or yours. But when our nervous system is working, then we think it's mine, we think it's a self. But really we see it's just a pile of elements, a pile of sensation, a pile of feeling. So we contemplate this to separate the mind from feeling, from sensation. We see that sensations are just sensations. So sometimes we should try to sit for a long time or walk for a long time to practice overcoming these feelings in the body see that feeling is just feeling. So we see this and we practice to have mindfulness, to care for our hearts. Wherever we go, whether we're sitting, standing, walking or lying down, have mindfulness all the time. Have clear mindfulness. In this way we can see the Buddha. May you establish mindfulness firmly and well and have samadhi, collectedness, firmly established. And we see the body is just a body, just a pile of earth, air, fire, and water. A being is just a being. There's not anything there. We call it a body. This is according to convention. A person is just a convention. A self, a me, a you, a them, and a theirs. It's all a convention. They're really just natural elements. We separate them out and see them degrade. And they all degrade according to their nature. So whatever method, whatever technique we're using, all these techniques all go to the realization of emptiness. Because in truth, it's all not self. It's all not a me, not a mine, a you or a yours. Whatever it is that's impermanent, that's unstable and changing, that can't last, that's all not self. 
It's something that we can't control, something unstable, not a self. So we have this chance, having been born into these lives, to destroy ignorance and delusion, to cut off these three fetters of personality view, clinging to rites and rituals, and skeptical doubt. This is something that we're capable of cutting off. This is called the realization of Sotapanna stream entry. It's the mind that enters the stream of Dhamma. And the mind that enters the stream of Dhamma is not capable of returning. One is born at the very lowest as a human. And having been born as a human, one may still have liking. And one may ask, well, if one is a stream enter and has seen the truth already, has seen not-self clearly, why do they still have kilesa? Why did they still have greed, hatred, and delusion? We see, for instance, Lady Visaka cried out of grief, and Anattapindika was very sad when his daughter died. So we see that this initial seeing of the Dhamma changes one's views to right view, but there's still attachment, there's still clinging. One is still having a sense of, they're still clinging to self, but one has seen the truth already. So this first stage is a very important stage to reach, the seeing clearly of anatta, because one sees clearly the way out of suffering and subsequently has effort to cut off that suffering. One sees the drawbacks in samsara, it's as if there's a snake in our bedroom. We can ask, well, if there was a deadly snake in our bedroom, would we be able to sleep? Would we be able to sleep and feel relaxed and at ease? And there's that snake in the bedroom every single day. Well, we wouldn't because there's a danger there. The snake would be able to kill us at any moment. So they see like this that the cycle of birth and death, samsara, is a great amount of suffering. We see this clearly. The mind is awake to this truth and is therefore careful. Whether there's liking or disliking arising, we see that all beings have old age, sickness and death coming to them. Now this suffering is inevitably coming. So therefore one tries to cut off the causes of suffering to train the mind, because one who is a stream enter has seen the truth already. One has seen that one's home, one's house, one's country, it's all on fire, it's all burning. Like being in a war, the house is on fire and one must flee, one must seek a way out. But these fires we don't see them, we can say it's a cool fire, so we don't perceive it. Old age is creeping up on us, sickness is creeping up on us, death is creeping up on us every single day. One who's practiced already has this knowledge, this insight arise, sees this clearly, that in the world it's all burning, it's all on fire, with old age, sickness, death, and separation. 
So how can one just sit, sit around and lie down without effort? Because we all must die in the end. And it's not that we die just from this one life. It's not that we die just once. But we've already died countless times already. And we can even see in just this one life of ours, no one wants death. But we all must die all the same. So in this life we should practice to die in the Dhamma, to die with merit, to die through practice, to die through goodness. So in this life we may have a lot. We may have a family, a spouse, children. Having been born we gain a lot of things. So we see that whether this life or past lives, that there can be a lot of uh, trouble and chaos. And so therefore we wish to practice the Dhamma, to practice this path. So we must make a determination that in this life, we have faith in this life. So may we see clearly the mind, see clearly the objects of mind, to contemplate it all as not self, that in truth there's no self there to be found. A being is just a being, feeling is just a feeling, the mind is just the mind, dhammas are just dhammas. Have wisdom to see this clearly. We see that merit and goodness, the Noble Eightfold Path, rapture and wisdom, these are all dhammas of a wholesome type, of a meritorious type. So we practice to put them down, to let them go, because they're all not self. Wisdom itself is just a natural phenomenon that arises, stays for a little while, and ceases. It's the same with mindfulness, samadhi, effort, and wisdom. They're all dhammas that arise and cease. So may you see them as dhammas, see them as not-self. There's a story of Lumpu Tongrat, a teacher of Venerable Ajahn Chah, who's teaching an old, infirm person on alms round that they shouldn't give alms in the morning. And this person gave rise to anger. Palumpu Tongrat spread loving kindness. And eventually that person did give alms. They went from someone who is stingy to one who is more giving. And when this person criticized Lumpu Tongrat angrily, got angry with him, Lumpu Tongrat lifted his hands in Anjali and said, Satu, Satu, the Dhamma has arisen, the Dhamma has arisen. There was another great teacher who had a nun scold him and he simply smiled. He saw it as Dhamma. He saw this is all Dhamma. Whether wholesome or unwholesome, it's all Dhamma arising and ceasing. We see that this body composed of the four elements is just as it is. It's something that's unstable, ever-changing, stressful and not self. It's not a me, not a mine, not a you or a yours. So may you contemplate this, have mindfulness, to put your mind with the Dhamma, to bring your mind to the Dhamma, to contemplate the four 
powers of vimangsa, analysis, chanda, desire, virya, effort, and chitta, mind or focus. These are dhammas that lead to success, whether it's in work or study, becoming or getting a master's degree, getting a PhD. So we get all these types of success through effort, through firm intent. And our Dhamma practice is the same way. We practice to cut off attachment, to abandon clinging. And we do this through setting our heart on the practice with effort. And this is all a type of merit and goodness. So may you set your hearts on this in this life. May you really put forth effort and try to do the practice to contemplate. Because having been born, we have this faith. So we should practice to understand clearly in our own hearts, to understand the Dhamma, to strive to make effort, to see that all materiality and mentality arises, stays for a little while, and ceases. Seeing this clearly, this destroys the sense of self. It changes our view from wrong view to right view. We see that in truth there's no me or you, no mine or yours. This is seeing the Dhamma. This is entering the stream of Dhamma, which is able to overcome the cycle of birth and death, the cycle of samsara. It's the stream that inevitably goes to enter Nibbana for sure. So one who has realized stream entry, they can be at ease in any of the four postures, be relaxed, and they'll still enter Nibbana all the same. They'll have no eighth life. However many lifetimes they have, it's not greater than seven and their lifetimes inevitably lead to Nibbana for sure. So I wish you all well in your Dhamma practice. May you be well, and may you all see the Dhamma. <laughs>